Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's podcast, part five of the political editors. Really good chat with Roland Watson, although I've got to say that because he's now my editor on the comment desk. But he talks about being political editor of the Times for the fall of Gordon Brown, the formation of the coalition, and the first whiff that something might be going on with David Cameron and Europe. Also, an amazing story about interviewing George W. Bush in the Oval Office. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, let's kick off with The Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, no James Marriott today. He is elsewhere bashing away at his column. Uh, however, we have got India Night. Morning, India. Morning, Matt. Uh, guys, tell you with us. And from The Guardian columnist, Gabby Hensliff. Morning, Gabby. Good morning. Nice to have you both here. Now, I, sp- I suppose we should start with the extraordinary mugshot of Donald Trump. Because it's so Donald Trump. It's like it's it's an advert for a slightly naff TV show that he's doing. But um, uh, here is the Times New York correspondent, Will Pavia, trying to describe it. Donald Trump is sort of glowering slightly towards the camera. Um, his hair is sort of catching the light. His eyebrows are sort of knit together. Um, and he's sort of staring straight down the barrel of the camera and sort of frowning at, at the guy taking the or whoever it was, taking the mugshot. Now, um, is this going to become the most famous mugshot since Hugh Grant, India? Yes, I'm afraid it is, um, because, you know, the the thing about photographs is lots and lots and lots of words are produced all the time about Donald Trump, but people aren't going to read the paperwork of the various indictments or necessarily all the comment pieces or all of the news or all of the stuff. But a photograph sticks in the memory, and this is a fairly indelible photograph, I think. Um, he looks absolutely extraordinary. He looks, he looks so like a bird. He's all sort of pointy, and I think he's trying to... I think he's trying to look like a badass, you know, with that sort of silly facial expression. Yeah. 
But yes, I mean, it's instantly, it's instantly memorable and alas, will remain instantly memorable for many decades to come. Gabby, I'm just disappointed he's not holding up some numbers. That, that for me, it, it's, not a, it's not a proper mugshot if he's not holding up his, his prison number. I know, I'm very disappointed about that. It does, I mean, it, the astonishing thing, the obviously incredibly Trump thing about it is that they've punted it almost as a kind of, you know, as a kind of positive, you know, look how belligerent he looks, America is coming at you. You know, he's kind of, kind of, kind of coming to answer all his critics. Like it's some kind of, you know, strongman piece of propaganda rather than, you know, sort of, a criminal mugshot. It's astonishing, really. Although what I mainly wondered about when I when I saw the description was along with an American mugshot, they give you the person's height and weight yes, yes. as well. And I am sure I you I would be willing to bet that he argued with them about putting the height up and the weight down. Because <laughs> he wears lifts, doesn't he? He very obviously wears lifts in his shoes. I mean, he's quite tall, but he's not as tall as he makes out to be. And there was that um, when he was still president, there was that report from his doctor that that had his uh, weight at kind of athlete level. Mm, um, yeah, and- 15 stone, I don't think so. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just not quite putting both feet on the scales. Um, in some in some mugshots I've seen, they actually have like a tape measure behind, so you would have, there'd been no arguing at all about how, how tall he was. Um, but yeah, there is, I mean, I suppose the, the point that you were making, India, is that, that it is extraordinary that we're in the situation now and his extraordinary power to sort of absorb attention and the news and turn every negative into a positive that he you know he's returned to twitter for the first time in like three two three years um in order to post this photo like you said to weaponize it to his own benefit i mean it, it is impossible to imagine i think possibly anyone else being able to turn being arrested indicted charged and then mugshotted and turn it into essentially an election poster. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, it, it's it's beyond through the looking glass. You know? and, but I, I think what he did during um, his term was that he degraded America. He degrades everything he touches. He degraded America. He degraded American politics. The aftermath of that is still being felt because all of his would-be... Um, all of the would-be Republican nominees are also so degraded that they won't call him out. Um, so they're all they're all kind of, you know, at that debate the other day, they're all kind of there in a row, Trump light, pathetically wet, refusing to say anything against him. So the kind of the the, the dominance of his upside-down world is kind of complete. You know, I find it really extraordinary. It makes me feel physically ill. But I sort of can't look away because it's so crazy. It's crazy. It's a crazy situation. And I find it particularly crazy that nobody uh, from the Republican Party in the US says this man is completely appalling. Please vote for somebody else. And that's the which thing. Is, right. That's, that's the... be an outrageous thing to say. It would just be a statement of fact. <laughs> so it's the whole thing. You know, we're trapped in this kind of doom spiral of catastrophe i think and actually there's an interesting thing gabby that the, the 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 journey that the republican party clearly needs to go on is a long way to go before they're ready to say enough is enough actually in a way you know people, you know it's a, it's a slightly lazy comparison between boris johnson and donald trump mostly based on hair although they have both potentially broken the law um but actually the conservative party came came round to the idea that actually maybe boris johnson wasn't the solution to everything much more quickly and has sought to move on a bit actually in a way the republican party's still 
a long, long way from that based on that 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 presidential debate that we had this week. Yeah, I mean, I think we had, a, as usual in the UK, we had a much milder dose of whatever it is that the, <laughs> that the US has got. And you kind of, you know, so we were over it quicker. But I think there was, there's a fascinating book um, called Mistakes Were Made by Not By Me about a psycholo- by a psychologist about why kind of people find it hard to admit they were wrong or change their minds. And it starts with this study of a doomsday cult, you know, one of those cults that says, you know, the world's going to end on a very precise, you know, at 10 past 10 on Tuesday, September the 15th or whatever it is. And and, um, and then, of course, it came around to Tuesday, September 15th, and, and the world did not end. And you, you'd expect at that point the cult's followers, you know, who've given up all their money and possessions and moved off into the woods to live off berries or whatever, and the understanding that the end of the world is coming, to, to like turn on their cult leader. And actually, what happened was reverse. They doubled down. They believed it more. It just the date was wrong, but they still believed in the apocalyptic cult, because otherwise you'd have to admit that you'd kind of sold everything down the river for something that turned out to be nonsense. And what's that make you? That makes you an idiot. And you can see some of that, I think, in Trump followers, you know, to believe they thought he was going to make America great again. If they were wrong and he was a charlatan, then what does that make them? That makes you an idiot. You know, so you kind of double down and believe more almost in, in contravention of the of the evidence. It's really interesting, isn't it, India, that the, 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 the journey that people have to go on. Actually, you know, we've seen that bit with Brexit that it's taken quite a long time for people who voted for Brexit to now say it's not worked and actually you know what you see with your, your Nigel Farage you say it just hasn't been done properly because they don't want to acknowledge it still yeah, yeah, don't want yeah. to acknowledge the thing was has not panned out as they promised I think also people are so grateful for any politician who comes along and makes them feel that they're being heard which is you know Trump's superpower even though it's kind of completely fraudulent because actually he does not feel their pain and he doesn't, he just wants, he just wants their vote and their, and their money. Um, but it's always the same. You know, these people come along, not very many of them, which says something interesting about the rest of politics and somehow really, really connect with people who are struggling. And, and as Gabby says, I think that's exactly right. You know, to, to at any point go, God, actually, this man is talking complete nonsense and none of what he says is true and none of what he promised has come to pass turns you into turns you into even more of a failure than you feel already. So you've got to stick with it and stick with the person, even as you just, you know, even as you, the, 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 the crevice opens and you all fall down it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it it's it's a terrible state of affairs. Yeah, there's a lot about the psychology of, uh, of, uh, of the public in general. Um, let's move on, because I'm really interested uh, in what you make of imposter syndrome. Nobody would accuse, I don't think, uh, well, Donald Trump or Boris Johnson are suffering from imposter syndrome. But uh, Michael Parkinson's son has said that uh, his father suffered from imposter syndrome and was racked with self-doubt. Uh, he's been giving an interview uh, after, obviously, Sir Michael died earlier this month at the age of 88, saying his father, uh, telling BBC his father didn't have as much self-confidence as he appeared to have on TV. Do you think imposter syndrome is a real thing, India? Oh, I think it's really real. And actually, I slightly mistrust people who don't have it. I think women, in particular, suffer from it, I think, more than men. But, but I think it's quite a good thing, you know. I think... Um, I think if you don't suffer from imposter syndrome at all ever, then you are, as it were, Donald Trump, and that is not good. Or you're, or you're a particular kind of unbelievably entitled person, possibly the 
product of a particular kind of school and or university who just kind of struts around the world believing they're God's gift. And those people are really intolerable. So you know, a bit of imposter syndrome is is quite a nice personality trait, I think. What, uh, what do you think, Abby? I'd agree with that only because I have it. Um, but yeah, I think... It's, <laughs> oh, it's I mean, not yeah, for me I, to say it's really, it's, really India's, it's really India's place to say something. But no, I think I, think I kind of... I think I've probably spent my whole career thinking I was about to be sacked any minute. And eventually you just sort of get used to it and, and assume that, um, that, you know, things will carry on much as they are. And, and, and when and if you do get sacked, that's just, that's just life. But I think the fascinating thing about Pakistan is you, you assume that kind of men in television, especially kind of big, seemingly alpha male personalities in a starring role on TV would be, you know, uber confident, kind of oozing kind of arrogance almost. And you forget that, you know, Michael Parkinson was was a minor son from Barnsley, you know, in the BBC at a time when the BBC was still quite class ridden, was still, you know, in, it's not that far from the days of all BBC announcers wearing bow ties and <laughs> DJs and, you know, speaking in RP and, and to come to have a Yorkshire accent even at that time within the BBC was was a big deal, you know. And I think you can understand why he felt, I think his son said he always felt that he wasn't as well educated or didn't have the polish or didn't have, or that his bosses didn't kind of think he was a good enough interviewer. And you can see where those obviously misplaced doubts came from. But I always think it's rather touching when when people confess to that because I think lots of people have those kind of same secret doubts and yeah. insecurities and don't talk to anybody about it. So it's kind of reassuring to know that other people feel the same, which is why I always admit to having them myself. <laughs> there, is also that, that, there is also that sort of slight sense of it, that actually part of the reason why he was so good, because if it manifests itself, as his son suggested, that he always thought that this, you know, people were questioning, should he be doing it? Should he be on the telly still? Should he be doing Actually, it made him better. You know, it made him work harder. Yeah. And the people who don't have that slither of yeah. self-doubt coast and then uh, get less good. Well, up next, we're going to... Test, test your, your self-confidence uh, when it comes to uh, maths. Uh, because um, GCSE results came out, uh, obviously, this week. Thousands of teenagers in England, Wales and Northern Ireland got the results yesterday. But it wasn't just young people who take the qualifications. Keith Dibble is a Labour councillor in Rushmore uh, and took uh, a, an English GCSE, got his results yesterday, at the age of 68. Hi, Keith. Morning, Matt. Well, go on then. Tell us how to get on. Uh, well, I got grade seven, wow. which in, in, in old uh, terminology is um, an A.E. And I got a distinction in, in public speaking, but um, I was, which I'm really pleased with. Um, and uh, but this imposter syndrome, I think, is it, it could, could be me, really, because <laughs> I went through, um, you know, left school with one uh, O-level and a, a handful of CSEs which shows my age, um, and ended up as a sort of a senior manager in industry and, you know, quite a leading local politician, but always felt a little bit inferior and at times very inferior when I'd be going into a board meeting. So I hadn't really was aware of this imposter syndrome until yesterday, but I think I could tick that box as well. And that was one of the reasons for going back to uh, to college or going to college for the first time. Uh, well, uh, congratulations on getting your, your, your grades this time. Right? Now, we, we, we thought, well, let's test our own... Uh, well, somebody thought I should be tested. That's basically what yeah. that actually happened here. So we're not going to do an English essay because that'll take far too long. So you've yeah. got some maths questions. I have indeed. And I've, have got, indeed. I've got as long as the break to try and answer them. So if yeah, you, you give us the question. And, and Gabby and India, you are very welcome to join in. Yeah. Uh, but if you're literally going to be no help, no help. <laughs> I Don't think you'll need you you'll need a, a double a double ad break. But anyway, let's right. Go. Come on then. You give but us the question. Question one then. Right. What is my... the ready? Go on. Are you, are you ready, guys? Yeah. 
What is minus three times three? What is minus three times three? Okay. Okay. Question one. Question two. Which of these angles is the largest? Right angle, <laughs> reflex angle, obtuse angle, acute angle. Ref- right, reflex, obtuse, acute. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Right. right, yeah. Number three, you'll love this one. Right. Shona has 14 dresses. Right. 50% of these are red. She gives five of her red dresses to a charity shop. She buys one new red dress. <laughs> what percentage of the dresses she has are now red? Right. Tell you what, Keith, do that one once more. Right. Slowly. Yeah. Shona has 14 dresses. Yeah. 50% of these are red. She gives five of her red dresses to a charity shop. Then she buys one new red dress. What percentage of the dresses she now has are red? This is Times Radio. It's Matt Cholly on Times Radio having a nightmare with maths. So, um, uh, Keith is on the line. Keith, you still there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Keith, Keith, waiting, Dib- Keith Dibble, waiting with interest in our answers. Sixty-eight did a GCSE in English, got a grade seven yesterday, which is really. I mean, was it a lot of work, Keith? It was the biggest challenge. I think I retired from sort of paid work summer of last year. I always had this sort of inferiority complex, so I thought I'd go go to college, did the assessment, but day one of going into a classroom after fifty odd years was quite daunting. But actually, the the class itself was a mixture of like a third were um, multi- uh, young people doing multiple subjects. A third were doing it for career advancement. They wanted to become a dental nurse or something like that. And a third of us were doing it for fun. And some camaraderie was uh, was was created in the group. But yeah, it was hard doing homework and, and, and also having to handwrite everything, handwrite everything when you've spent the last 20 years using <laughs> time computers yeah, yeah, yeah. and such things, yeah. Well, but, I'll tell you um, what, Keith, I'm basically buying time here to try, but there's, there's no good. We're going to have to get over it. So you, I should say, actually, that um, years ago when I was at the Taunton Times around this time, yeah. we got the whole office to either do a maths or an English GCSE. Yeah. And I, I, did a, I did a maths one, I think I got a B, I think I did well. Well done. Well anyway, done. right. So come on then. So let's do the questions then. What was question number one? Right. What is minus three times three? India or yeah. India or Gabby? Yeah. Do, you, do you want to have a go? I have think. Go on. I think. Bearing in mind, I've got a son who did maths GCSE yeah. this year, but bearing in mind also that I am absolutely atrocious at maths. I think if you times a number by a negative number, the answer is always negative. Yeah. In which case, it's minus nine. I've also written down minus nine. Um. India? Uh, I went round the back of the bike sheds for a fag. <laughs> <laughs> oh, India was one of the cool girls. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Sat, you, know, you know, Keith, I'm so admiring of Keith. I haven't got a math so level. I sat it three times oh. and I couldn't get it. And when I got to university and they gave me this kind of micro scholarship, they said, this is all very great, etc. but you're going to have to get a maths O-level. And then happily, they forgot. So I am literally <laughs> ignorant to my eternal shame. So go on then, Keith. What's the answer? Minus nine. Yay! Yay! We've got right. one. Okay. Um, the only one I'm going to get right. Right. Uh, question two, Keith. Which of these angles is the largest? Right angle, reflex angle, obtuse angle, and acute angle. India. I don't know. I didn't even know reflex angle existed. <laughs> I must admit, I didn't know. I've gone obtuse. Yeah, Gabby. I said reflex oh. because 
I don't, admittedly, I don't know what two of those are. So, you know. Right. Gabby Gabby is our champion at his reflex. Oh, well done. So it's, it's amazing what you can do on a flick. Gabby's got two. Yeah, yeah, Matt's yeah. got one. Uh, still into or nothing. Right. So uh, last question then, Keith. Right. Shona has 14 dresses. Yeah. 50% of these are red. Yeah. She gives five of her red dresses to a charity shop. Yeah. She buys one new red dress. What percentage of the dresses she has are now red? So just because I'm conscious of the time, I'm going to go through my maths. 14 dresses, 50% of red is seven. She gives five away, which means she's got two red dresses left out of nine. Uh, one more red dress is 10. So I think she's got three out of 10, which is 30%. Correct. Hey! So I've given the game away now. Gabby, uh, what was your answer? <laughs> oh, I thought it was three out of the... To- I got to three, and then I thought it was three out of the total of dresses, which is 14 plus the one she's got, which is three out of 15, which no, is No, but 20. she's given five away, hasn't she? She's given yeah. five. I know, but I thought it was counted all the dresses in the question. Know. Gabby Hinsliff from The Guardian and India Knight from The Sunday Times. You can read her every week, of course. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is part five of The Political Editors. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken, has it not? This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth, growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for The Times. This is The Political Editors. 
In this episode, Roland Watson on interviewing Bush in the Oval Office, the birth of the coalition, and the Times official election artist. Roller coaster of extraordinary stories, but a sort of an inexorable route to the downfall of the Tories and the incoming of Labour. For these events, we didn't just turn up with a photographer, but we turned up with an artist as well. He just made a speech. He was in an absolutely filthy mood. I mean, it was the first peacetime coalition for 80 years. Eventually got an interview with Bush uh, in the Oval Office. And at the end of the interview, he said, all right, come over and opened a drawer and started producing baseballs and commemorative postcards. So, Roland Watson, you became political editor in January 2010 succeeding Phil Webster, who'd been there for about 200 years. What was it like taking over as political editor, having worked with him so close for such a long time? Pretty terrifying, to be honest. I, I joined the Times uh, in 1998 as a political correspondent. I was at the time on the Express, and so I, I, uh, where I was political editor, but I joined as a political correspondent. I'd always wanted to work for the Times, really. And I joined this most illustrious team involving Phil and Peter Riddle and Matthew Paris was sketching. So I had worked with Phil very closely, both in, uh, in Westminster. And then I'd, I went from there to Washington, but was obviously working very closely with him while he was in Westminster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was taking over from, from a legend. And replacing such a big name like Phil Webster, political editor for such a long time. What did you learn from him? What skills what skills did you did you take from Phil? Well, some skills that were entirely personal and very difficult to learn. Phil had an uncanny ability to read silences or even even read body language uh, and and know what was behind it. He came very excited into our Porter Cabin in Westminster one afternoon. Notably so, shall we say. Uh, what's up? He said, oh, 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 oh I've, I've just seen George Jones walking down the corridor. Uh, George Jones was his uh, long-term rival and friend who was the political editor of the Daily Telegraph. Uh, oh, yeah, and so what? Uh, well, I, he, he was walking down the corridor in a funny way. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's got something. And Phil devoted the rest of the afternoon to making it his business to find out what story George Jones had got in his pocket and not only to beat it, to better it so that the next day's front page of the Telegraph duly splashed with George's story and the Times splashed with Phil's slightly improved version. <laughs> uh, and that's probably a skill you can't really teach but that is how to be a good political editor. I suppose taking over in 2010 on the cusp of the end of the, the sort of Labour government, it was almost going full circle, because when you, you joined the lobby in the early 90s, it was the end of the Tory era and the, the sort of the rise of new Labour. Yeah, it was, very much. Um, I mean, there was the five years of the major parliament was a sort of roller coaster of extraordinary stories, but a sort of an inexorable route to the downfall of the Tories and the incoming of Labour. And uh, you're right. I mean, at that stage in January, Labour certainly hadn't given up hope. Yeah. Um, Brown and his team thought that even after 13 years themselves, they still had a good story to sell, which was largely amounted to Gordon Brown saving the world after the financial crash. And we not only saved the world, uh, saved the banks and saved... <laughs> 
the election campaign that followed was absolutely fascinating. It became a genuine three-horse race. We had the first televised debates, which gave Clegg his moment of oxygen. And uh, really, right to the end, the election was pretty hard to call. And actually, I mean, certainly in the time... So I've been in the lobby for almost 20 years now. And probably the, the, the 2010 elections are one where... During the campaign, nobody knew what was going to happen. There have been other elections where we thought we knew what was going to happen, and then it didn't turn out to be the case. But a genuine, open contest, the ups and downs of the campaign, the novelty of the of the TV debates. And presumably, if you're the, political, the new political editor of The Times in 2010, does everybody want to speak to you? Up to a point. <laughs> <laughs> there was a rather fabulous tradition of the editor interviewing every party leader along with a political editor. And for these events, we didn't just turn up with a photographer, but we turned up with an artist as well, so that the interview would be displayed across two pages of the uh, of the Times inside with this artist's sketch as the main image on the page, a guy called Matthew Cook, who'd also drawn uh, sketches for the Times from, uh, from conflict zones. And two of the party leaders were uh, very keen to talk to us, so we got Cameron and Clegg under our belts uh, quite early on in the campaign. Gordon Brown was incredibly reluctant. He really did not want to do this interview. And we entered the last week of the campaign with me still pretty much begging by that stage. And there was always, it couldn't be fitted in. There was a diary complication. It was just too much trouble. But Gordon, he'd really fallen out with the times. We had, partly because we had, during the campaign, endorsed the Tories. Anyway, I did, it, during that last week, I got a phone call at about half eight in the morning from a number 10 guy saying, all right, uh, you can have the interview. Uh, we've got a... a tiny bit of time at this college in Leamington Spa, uh, but you have to be there by 11.30. And it was pretty much mission impossible. <laughs> um, and it was designed for us to fail and for, for them to be able to say, well, we offered. But anyway, James Harding, who was the editor at the time, was game for anything. So we scrambled, made it there somehow, and at that stage... With I'm, the artist? With the artist, Very absolutely good. with the artist. He scrambled as well. Everyone, everyone, everyone played their role. At that stage, I'm not even sure the number 10 guys had told the Prime Minister that this interview was going to take place because they'd assumed we wouldn't make it. He just made a speech. He was in an absolutely filthy mood. It was the last thing he wanted to do. We pulled up some chairs and for about 20, 25 minutes, he just sort of thundered at us. Um, we asked a few questions, none of which got answered. And, and he just delivered a very Brownian script. I want to talk about serious issues. I'm not going to talk about personalities or tidbits. I'm only here to talk about serious issues. And he delivered his script again and again. So not everyone wanted to speak to us. I was just sort of reflecting back because it was clearly a time where Labour really did want to speak to the Times and, and Phil cultivated those relations. So both the Blairites and the Brownites sort of had him on speed dial. When you were a junior political correspondent and everyone went to Phil, how did you sort of navigate your way through that? Well, first of all, it was a wonder to see how Phil kept up contacts with both sides of an increasingly dysfunctional party, but also with the Tories. 
It was masterful. I mean, in a sense, that was one of my favourite jobs being political correspondent because you had enormous freedom to roam around and make your own fun, as it were. It was finding stuff that no one else had. It had been very useful starting in the lobby, working for local papers, yeah. a string of local papers. So when I joined, I had a, I, I had a lot of sort of backbench or junior minister type contacts who I knew quite well. That was helpful. Yeah, I've, similarly, you, you end up with these sort of little pockets of MPs who no one else has ever bothered speaking to. I seem to be the only journalist who knew Geoffrey Cox was when he, he, he appeared at the news. So let's go back to 2010 then. Labour on the way out. The Tories were on the way in. How did you find David Cameron? Enormously confident, personable. I think overall slightly more diligent than he's often given credit for, but with a slight seat-of-the-pants quality to the way he went about his business. There was something in the sort of the essay crisis prime minister. My brilliant colleague at the time and successor, Francis Elliott, who rather brilliantly nailed that in a single word when in his biography of Cameron he dubbed him the king of chillaxing, which was very apposite and stuck and, and uh, rung, rung true. You mentioned him earlier, but there was also there was another person in this marriage, in Nick Clegg. And how do you think you, the Times, the lobby generally, coped in those early days of having a coalition? With some difficulty. It was, to start with, it was quite hard to understand how this was going to work. Uh, or if to, it was going to work. Liter- or, or if. Yeah, how long it would survive. Um, I mean, it was the first peacetime coalition for 80 years. No one involved in either constructing it or covering it knew the procedure, uh, if there was a procedure. And that first joint appearance they made at the end of what had been a very gruelling campaign and then five days of coalition talks when they appeared uh, looking like spring daisies in the in the Downing Street garden. Prime Minister, do you now regret when once asked what your favourite joke was, you replied, Nick Clegg, and Deputy Prime Minister, what do you think of that? <laughs> I, we're all going to have. I, I'm afraid I did oh, once. Right. I'm, I'm, uh... <laughs> a lot of the questions then were, well, where, where are the Lib Dems going to sit? I mean, they only ever sat in one place in the, <laughs> in the Commons. How are the, how are the ministries going to work? Who is going to be in charge of whipping the Lib Dems or whipping the Tories, what would the sanctions be? And, uh, you know, to their, to their credit, they made it work for five full years. Uh, but at the start, it was, um, it was exciting and interesting to cover because every department, you know, had a, most departments had a Lib Dem in them. There were these strange marriages of convenience all around Whitehall. Uh, a lot of territory MPs absolutely hated it. But Cameron and Clegg both quite enjoyed their jobs and for better or for worse, saw it through to the end. And at that point, one of the really striking things in politics that we haven't really had that before or since was that all three parties were interesting. And so you sort of had this constant, it felt like you were sort of constantly you know, spinning plates of who, who was you going to pick the phone up to today rather than, you know, for large periods, you know, what was the point of speaking to the Tories during the new Labour years or whatever? Did you, did you find that, that you had sort of Clegg, Cameron and Miliband? I mean, Miliband, one of his biggest problems was that he was the third most interesting man in politics. Yeah. Yeah, he was, and that was a that was a real problem for Labour. 
in terms of projection and how they how they sold Miliband. And given the commitment and then the legislation to a five-year parliament, that was a long time when the lobby and the public really didn't need to pay much attention to to Ed Miliband uh, because they had this sort of living drama, living experiment going on in front of them. I mean, the one thing there was in the lobby was a a, a sort of emergency making of Liberal Democrat contacts, uh, which was a very minority. Some of us always had those. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, I bow to you. But that had been a minority pursuit uh, up to that point. It was normally the most junior person in any team would would make it their business because no one else had and suddenly yeah. all the peers or, yeah, yeah exactly or both yeah exactly when you um look at your time in the lobby we always there's always the, the the danger of thinking that the thing that's happening right now is the biggest thing that's ever happened in terms of the big events that you covered both as pothead but before that as well obviously the the, the former the formation of the the coalition the financial crash 911 which are the ones that you think really did change politics and the country. 9-11 on a more personal level happened in the first week that I uh, had turned up in the Times as Washington Bureau. So I, I had sort of four years in Washington of really being completely dominated by 9-11 and covering Bush. And I think the, the experience of reporting in Washington certainly coloured how I later saw Westminster. Westminster feels like a goldfish bowl. It's one of the most attractive things about it, uh, that everything moves is important and you can sort of newsify any coffin spit. Washington is very different to that, not just because there's uh, much more deference towards the office holder who's a head of state as well as a head of government. Uh, the White House press corps still stand up when the president enters the room. But they have a much different view of the world. It's like being on Mount Olympus in Washington. You turn up to the State Department and uh, there are incredibly smart uh, American officials who understand uh, the socioeconomics of the tiniest African state and the ethnic uh, differences in across Southeast Asia. And they are fantastically literate. And from there, London does seem quite parochial. Uh, a bit like a parish council. And so then coming back to Westminster later, it was odd going back into the goldfish bowl (laughs) and sort of getting back into the swing of things. And how was it being a British journalist reporting for a British paper from Washington in terms of the the Blair-Bush relationship and the some of the characterisation in the UK being that, you know, Blair was the poodle and just following Bush and so on. Mr. Prime Minister, welcome. Thank you very much, Mr. President. And Well, I was delighted to come here and I've been really enthusiastic about our meetings so far. They've been absolutely excellent, very productive. Was that how Blair and Britain was being seen in America? Not at all. Blair was lionised and regarded as passionate, as fluent. I mean, George Bush... I have to say, I loved reporting Bush. He was a walking story. You know, he couldn't he couldn't walk into a room without committing news, and not always intentionally. No, he was very misunderestimated, as he might <laughs> he have put it, so, yeah. uh, by the Brits. Uh, I always fought a losing battle, a bit with the Foreign Desk, um, uh, about actually how smart a communicator I thought Bush was. I thought he was always going to win that second election, hands down. The impression of Blair was completely different the way we treated him as sort of rolling over for Bush and and the respect with which he was treated over there. 
But being a British reporter there was it, it, it's it's a very very different role because as you say, uh, you know, you hope as the Times political editor, everyone wants to speak to you. Very very hard to get an audience there, and in fact, your best hope is actually trying to get an audience with the president himself occasionally once a year or once every two years British newspaper will be granted an audience and I sweated blood leaning on on the one person in the National Security Council who might be able to help eventually got an interview with Bush with Bush uh, in the Oval Office with Jerry Baker who at at the time was our Washington commentator and so we had a we had a reasonable chat quite a long time and at the end of the interview, he said, all oh, right, come over, come over here. So he took us from the sort of uh, the twin armchairs by the fireplace, if you like, to his desk and opened a drawer and started producing baseballs and commemorative postcards. And he said, uh, what are your kids' names? So I said, so I said I've got two daughters and their names. He signed notes to them. Uh, he signed baseballs for them and I did wonder if this was a this was the best use of uh, of the president's time then he sent a Jerry and he said right and what about your kids now Jerry's got five daughters um <laughs> so that really did hold us up quite a bit at the end um, but did he have an endless supply of baseballs in that jaw apparently endless enough for seven at one shot anyway and so then you come back your poleds Gordon Brown I mean I get the sense that Gordon Brown might have thrown a baseball at you rather than sign one <laughs> When you go in to interview the Prime Minister in Downing Street, do you get the same treatment? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, it, it's a bit more knowing, you know, you, you're not meeting them for the first time and the, the terrain is better understood. They understand the game much better. You understand the game. You, you know where you're trying to take them. They're extremely aware uh, where they're trying not to go. So, no, it's a bit different. Of course, one of the big political stories, more after you, you left as, as Poled, was, was the story of Europe. And David Cameron Macy kept a lid on that during uh, most of the coalition times. But it was always bubbling around in the background. It was. And it, um, I, I mean, there was an, the extraordinary Brussels summit towards the end of 2011, I think it was, when the 20 six 27 leaders sat through the night they, it was a very arcane discussion it was about whether new fiscal rules for the eurozone should be written into eu treaties the sort of sort of stuff that summits are made of it wasn't built up as a big summit but they they didn't break up they went on and on and as dawn broke it emerged that cameron had vetoed uh, the outcome. I said before coming to Brussels that if I couldn't get adequate safeguards for Britain in a new European treaty, then I wouldn't agree to it. And UKIP was on the rise at home. He clearly had a problem with a wing of his party. And he had just completely uh, recast our relationship with Europe in the sense that we were now an isolated single state, even the non-Eurozone countries uh, we were against. And that was, that was incredibly dramatic at the time. And I remember later that morning, Cameron's spokesman, Steve Field, briefing us all in one of the side rooms. The, the expectation, given Cameron's words and his actions, was that this was putting us on, uh, putting him personally on a collision course with the EU, and that he would uh, he would indeed begin to seek a way out, and that was the assumption in the lobby, and 
Steve came in and said, well, well no, I don't misunderstand it. This man is passionately pro-European. He doesn't want to leave the EU. And so you had a, a, a leader who'd won the Tory crown by playing footsie with the Eurosceptics, had just isolated Britain and Europe. There was talk of a referendum already or a rearrangement uh, uh, with Europe in the background. And yet he appeared to be someone who personally was committed to keeping Britain in. And you thought at that stage, well, how on earth is that going to work? Doesn't seem to stack up in domestic political terms. And indeed, from there, we know what happened. And I suppose it was, it was one of those things that so much of what David Cameron said and did in those years leading up to the referendum were about how terrible the EU was. They won't let us do that. They won't let us do this. I've had to use a veto. I've had to call for a break. And so his argument then ended up being, this is a terrible organisation and that's why we should stay in it. Yeah, that's, and, and that's what you got a first hint of in that, in, yeah. with the use of that veto and its aftermath. And it was very hard to stack up as an argument. Anyone else other than Cameron may have shied away from it, but he had extraordinary confidence, extraordinary personal belief, and thought that he could, uh, uh, all he had to do was put it to the country and the power of his, his personality would, would win the day. And just looking ahead then, based on your experience of, of 2010, although the polls would suggest a stonking Labour victory the next election, I wonder whether you think, which actually was the expectation in 2010, that the Conservatives were going to get a majority because nobody could imagine a hung parliament happening. Is it underpriced? You know, should, should your successors in the lobby be dusting off their Lib Dem contacts book again uh, for, for an election campaign where the outcome is, is unknown and... A coalition could be on the cards? Well, looking at it from a distance, the numbers this time are very different. And yes, it's 13 years, which is analogous, and a newish prime minister who's been unelected by the people. That was also the case with And Gordon former chancellor. And a former chancellor. <laughs> this time, the Tories have got a long way to come back, much further than Labour did. Um, and I also think that the Lib Dems are not going to be jumping into bed with anyone in the same way that they did last time very soon. I think it's going to take probably another generation before they do that again. You, you used the phrase looking from a distance. You, you went from being political editor to foreign editor in 2013, now comment editor, which means I have to pitch my column to you every <laughs> week. Do you prefer your politics from a distance these days rather than being at the centre of it all? I do, miss, I do miss the big days. There's nothing quite like it. It's incredibly exciting being in Westminster. And I, I never felt anything but privileged being able to go and work there. In a funny way, I also miss the quiet days when you could just hang around in the lobby, see who turned up, <laughs> see what they had Without to say. Without the news desk, be able to see what you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I have to say, I am in awe of Steve Swinford and his team how they manage the demands of the digital age uh, and social media and stay across everything and on top of everything. It's really quite a skill. Well, Roland Watson, it's been lovely to speak to you. And I shall be speaking to you again later when I have to pitch my column to you. Uh, Roland Watson, thanks very much for joining us on The Political Letters. Pleasure. that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast don't forget you can catch up on all the previous episodes of the political editors and we've got two more next week we'll have francis elliott and the current political editor stephen swinford so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes but for now for me matt jolly it's goodbye <laughs>